Welcome to Aviation United by Aviation Zero. I'm delighted to be chatting with cardiac electrophysiologist, a physician specializing in heart rhythm disorders and irregular heartbeat treatment, and author of Restart Your Heart, the playbook thriving with AFib, Dr. Asim Desai. A very good day to you, Dr. Asim. How are you getting on? Good morning, David. I am doing very well. Thank you. How about yourself? Wonderful. So generally, we usually start this. Um, the listeners seem to like where all, all of the guests are from. So where are you? Where are you right now? Where's your location? What part of the world? Currently, I'm in Orange County, California, in a city called Mission Viejo, about halfway between Los Angeles and San Diego. I've been living out here for about 15 years. However, my hometown is Chicago. I grew up in Chicago, went to school there. My parents are from India. I'm first generation here in the U.S. I was born in New York, grew up in Chicago, and I'm now on the West Coast. So are you, are you a Red Bulls fan? I am a big Chicago Bears fan and Bulls fan, especially the Bears, because I was around the time that the Bears went to the Super Bowl in the 1980s. So that, that somewhat dates me, but that was also a, uh, a big moment for the city. Right. I was watching there on Netflix. I know we're sidetracking, but I have to say it to you anyway, because I, I was so fascinated with Michael Jordan and the rest of the team. And there was a documentary, I think it was called The Last Dance. And yes. Um, yes. it was absolutely fascinating. So it, it kind of it gave me a greater insight of um, how much of an inspiration. I know the whole team was wonderful, but Michael Jordan as well. He's, he's, a, he's a winner to, uh, to watch. So tell me this. What about the temperature now? Because as, as in Ireland... We don't get the temperatures in California, so let me know what, what's going on there temperature-wise. Are you, is the sun splitting the trees? Yes, the sun is starting to come out. We typically have sunrise around 6, 6.30. And the nice thing about Orange County, we're very blessed down here that we have very temperate weather. So the summers can get hot, uh, hot defined by in the 80s. I think that I have, have a patient I was talking to yesterday, who's from Arizona, and she was saying that it's in the hundreds so oh, wow. we're very okay. fortunate we're very fortunate here and then right. in the winters uh, it's usually in the 60s or so oh. it can get cool at night we're well, blessed though the weather so here bad. is amazing compared to ireland oh my word you're making me jealous now in the winter 60 degrees oh dear we're looking we're looking to get that in the summer but anyway we'll, we'll, we'll keep on going so can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in Chicago, as I mentioned, and I've been interested in science since a young age. Uh, what was, I think, probably one of the most formative aspects of growing up was my dad had a heart attack when he was 37. So oh, wow. I was exposed to heart disease. Yeah, I was exposed to heart disease at a really young age, and it was obviously fairly traumatic. I was only three, so I didn't really understand exactly what was going on. But I think I'm a big believer that those kind of early experiences really ingrain in your brain somewhere. And so as I grew up and got more interested in science, ultimately, my dad was also a physician. So he survived the heart attack. He was a physician. He was a cancer specialist, an oncologist. And so I found what he was doing fascinating. And initially, I wanted to go to med school, follow in his footsteps, and actually head off in the direction of oncology. However, as I started learning more about the different organ systems, I found the heart just fascinating. You know, it's an engine, basically. So in so many ways, it's simple, but in so many ways, it's, it's truly complex. But the best way to think about it is as an engine with valves, electricity, and plumbing. Yes. And I especially found the electrical system interesting. I didn't develop that interest until later in training, and we can circle back to that. But the electrical system, I feel, is just filled with so many nuances and so many interconnections to other parts of the body. And it's only wood motor as well, isn't it, the heart? We kind of, you know, we don't have two of them, which is, which is not probably great we did have two of them, but having just the one, we should be really taking care of it more, is it? Absolutely. Uh, it's a great way to describe it, that we use a term called the ejection fraction or EF. It's a, it's a measure of that motor, that pump performance, so to speak. So the end result of any issues with the heart, whether it's a valve problem, whether it's an electrical problem, whether it's a plumbing or coronary artery problem, such as a heart attack, can impact that motor. And as we talk about this condition, atrial fibrillation, we'll learn that some of the symptoms can be really subtle, such as just feeling tired. And one would think of like a car engine, you know, if your motor is not, or a uh, airplane engine, uh, yes. your motor is, <laughs> is not, uh, your motor is not, functional. So you're going, to, you're going to get symptoms that are reflective of that, this overall lack of blood flow through the body. And so 
it can be really tricky. We often analogize AFib to electrical cancer. It's the sort of slow growing process that one day sneaks up on you and you, you realize that you have it, or unfortunately it could present as a stroke. Uh, but it's, uh, it, it really is a, a fascinating uh, area. And then just kind of circling back to your question about uh, growing up and where I'm from. So when I was in college, I was a philosophy major and I was part of this program that as a high school senior, I applied to Northwestern University, which is based out of Evanston, Chicago, and Illinois. And at the time of acceptance to college, you gained dual acceptance to med school. And the idea was that they wanted to encourage physicians to be well-rounded. So I had to do my pre-med coursework and then also additional work in liberal arts. However, it really provided me with this whole different aspect of using my brain. And surprisingly enough, David, the philosophy degree plays right into what I do for a living every day, which people find really hard to believe. But the logical reasoning, the deductive reasoning that we utilize, especially in my field of cardiology, is very reminiscent of some of the proofs and in, in reading that I did when I was in college. So can I ask then just to track back a little bit, you mentioned there your father had a heart attack at 37, which is very, very young. And yes. did, did he have, I mean, any symptoms or was it just out of the blue that it happened? It was somewhat out of the blue. And, and one of the things about, so my family's from uh, India and one of the things about Asian Indians and some other ethnicities in the Asia region is that we tend to have very small coronary arteries. So it doesn't take a whole lot of blockage to actually trigger a heart attack. A heart attack's where an artery will block and then that part of the heart muscle will die unless that artery is opened with either uh, angioplasty or bypass surgery. So he didn't really have, you know, normally with coronary artery disease or, or clogging of your arteries, you get what we call angina where as you exert yourself, you get symptoms, and then when you rest, the symptoms go away. It's like a supply-demand mismatch of, right. of the plumbing. And so he didn't, he didn't really have that. Of course, he wasn't also that physically active. So that's something that we often notice, that people may not have the warning symptoms because they're really not challenging their body every day. And then that one day, and again, I don't have too much memory because I was so young at the time. What I do remember, and I, I actually – talk about this in my book, this sort of personal stories. I remember waking up in the next door neighbor's bedroom, guest bedroom, and literally waking up and, and staring at the next door neighbor. And he was trying to explain to me what happened, that my mom had to take my dad in the middle of the night with the paramedics to the hospital. And uh, as I mentioned, just kind of through my early training, it evolved into this interest in the heart. And I didn't mention this earlier, but sadly, when I was in the middle of medical school, uh, before I actually started getting into the clinical aspect, I was just learning the basic science. He actually um, suffered sudden death, a sudden cardiac arrest when he was in India traveling. Oh, geez, and, sorry. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And, and, and I, I talk about this in the book. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was extremely traumatic, as you can imagine. Yeah, sure. uh, it, it, and it, it really, it again, ties into what I do for a living now. One of the things I do is I implant defibrillator devices into people to prevent cardiac arrest. And again, as I went into the training process, I wasn't really thinking about how doing that procedure would actually save someone else's dad, but it actually does. Um, and it, it, so it, it's interesting just how life really does come full circle, you know, yes. sometimes in terms of. And especially not expected. I mean, it's, it's, um, but you've obviously carried that on and, and the motivation um, has continued to, you know, to prevent people from, from having these problems in the, in the future. So what, what is, I mean, what is a, a fib? Is it just, is that like a, an abbreviation for something a bit more complicated? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, so a fib, uh, stands for atrial fibrillation. So atrial refers to the top two chambers of the heart. The heart has four chambers, the motor concept that we, we talked about. The two top chambers are called the atria. The two bottom chambers are called the ventricles. The atria contribute about 30% of the pump performance of your heart. So the workhorses of the heart are the ventricles. And in the setting of a heart attack, for example, the ventricles get affected. So that's why if you have a massive heart attack, often that will lead to congestive heart failure or other kinds of conditions. When the atria get affected, and that's predominantly with this condition AFib, 
you will lose about a third of the pump performance of your heart. So it doesn't typically cause death. However, what it can cause is stroke. That's the most devastating aspect of AFib. When the AFib fibrillate, that second part of the term, fibrillation, that simply refers to the contraction pattern of the heart, the heart being a muscle. So the heart would normally contract with a very coordinated process. Fibrillation refers to the fact that the, the atria literally quiver or fibrillate. And when the contraction is not happening in a coordinated fashion, the blood just sits there. And when blood sits, it clots, you know, just like when you, when you cut yourself and you hold yes. pressure over the air, it clots. So when a clot forms in the heart, it travels directly through the arterial system to different parts of the body, most commonly the brain. And that is often the presentation of AFib is a stroke. And so it can be catastrophic and people may not have any warning symptoms. So, uh, I mean, is that why we have these uh, like uh, defibrillators to try and get the rhythm back for the heart? Or is that something totally separate? Yeah, it's related. So the defibrillators are really designed for the ventricles. So that right. when people have a out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, you know, you see them in the airports all the time. You see them on uh, softball fields. Uh, what, what they're really doing is they're trying to rescue people from cardiac arrest. And in most cases, cardiac arrest is related to something called ventricular tachycardia and ventricular fibrillation. So this fibrillation, this, this uncoordinated pattern of contraction, it can happen to the ventricles. And when it happens to the ventricles, because those are the workhorses of the heart, when those don't move, then people drop dead. So when you hear about people who drop dead on the basketball court or in their sleep or any of those kinds of things, it's usually the mechanism is usually ventricular fibrillation. And that's what the AEDs, the automated fibrillators are used for. For AFib, we do shock the heart for AFib. However, it is a controlled procedure called an electrical cardioversion, where a person is usually they're 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 stable, they're clinically stable, they're symptomatic, but their blood pressure is stable. And so we are able to we sedate people deeply so they don't they're not aware of anything that's going on. It's a very quick procedure. In fact, I just did one yesterday. Uh, oh, wow, and okay. we, literally, we, we literally press a button on the device. It, it looks a little bit like it, it, the ones you see in the airport. However, we have the ability to program the amount of energy delivered. It's, it's, the units are joules. Uh, so we can deliver 100 joules or 200 joules or what have you. And the, there are pads that are on the patient's body on the chest, usually one on the front, one on the back to really place the heart in that electrical field. And then simply an electrical impulse is delivered to reset the rhythm. It's not like what you see on television shows. We're, we're not really using those paddles anymore. We're using these patches. Like the George Clooney where he, where he says clear from Eeyore or something like that, is it? <laughs> yeah, it's not as dramatic and we certainly uh, aren't as popular as George Clooney. Uh, right. on, on, although I do think there needs to be a, a, a true reality show for the healthcare industry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that is one of the that is one of the first treatments for AFib. That when someone presents with AFib, often what's done is this procedure called electrical cardioversion. So you're converting the heart back into a normal rhythm using electricity. So what what causes AFib then? In terms of, I mean, are we? Can you have it like when you're when you're a baby? Is it, you know, it's, does it happen later on in life? Because it, does it gradually increase, or how, how does it work? Yeah, so it's, you know, as I mentioned, you have this uncoordinated contraction of the top chamber. So the heart has an electrical system. It starts up in the top right chamber called the right atrium. There's a region of cells called the sinus node. That's really what sets your pulse. And what's interesting is there's a connection with the brain. So the brain actually has nerves that go into the heart, just like it does with any other organ. And you have cells there that are actually capable of independently stimulating the heart even if the brain were not working. So you can have people, for example, on a ventilator who may be brain dead by all definitions, but their heart's still beating. And it's because this group of cells has independent function. However, that being said, the brain does direct the heart and there's kind of a two-way relationship in setting the contraction pattern. So they fib, the number one risk factor is age. So age over 60, 65 range, the incidence of AFib goes up significantly. And the reason for that, the mechanism, is that just like any other part of our body, 
our organs age and develop scar tissue. So like what you would get in your knees or your shoulder or what have you, you can get in your heart. And so a, a good way to think about AFib, one analogy is arthritis of the electrical system, that that progressive scar tissue in the electrical system, just kind of like a broken wire, the scar actually is what creates the break in the insulation, so to speak, of a broken wire. So AFib is like a series of broken wires with breaks in the insulation. And age is what contributes to those breaks in the insulation. And then the other top risk factors would include high blood pressure. So high blood pressure results in stress to the atria and creates that scarring process. So the end result is the scar tissue. Coronary artery disease, uh, people who have valve problems, either leaky or narrowed valves. Obesity is a huge trigger for AFib. You know, we have this obesity epidemic going on, not only in this country, but in the world. And there's a very strong tie-in to the development of AFib. Diabetes is a big trigger for AFib. People with thyroid disease, uh, usually overactive, but sometimes underactive thyroid, can get AFib. Uh, actually, heavy amounts of alcohol are a risk factor for AFib. We have a term called holiday heart, where we actually <laughs> see, yeah, we believe it or not, David, we actually see people coming into the hospital around the holidays with episodes of AFib. And, and there's a couple of different mechanisms for that. But obviously, there's a big concern now with the pandemic because alcohol sales have gone up tremendously. And we are actually seeing many of our patients getting more AFib. You know, one of the reasons is the alcohol consumption. And so the, the last risk factor, I mean, there, there are several others, but, but these are the top. The last risk factor to mention is sleep apnea. And this really impacts pilots quite a bit yes. because, you know, sleep apnea results in basically you stop breathing and it can happen either from obstructive, which is the most common form of sleep apnea or OSA. And that's where typically you have an airway, either anatomic abnormality or you have external compression on your airway or your, your tongue slides into the back of the throat. And obesity is a big risk factor for sleep apnea uh, for that reason. And then you have central sleep apnea where there's an area in the brain that controls breathing that's abnormal. The obstructive causes usually snoring. The central just causes you to stop breathing, so you may not have any snoring. But what was found out over the last, only really over the last few years, is the strong tie-in to AFib, that that drop in oxygen that occurs at night when people are sleeping causes cellular changes in the heart that facilitate the development of heart rhythm problems, most specifically AFib. Sleep apnea also causes other electrical issues in the heart, like a slow heart rate, need for a pacemaker, the variety of other conditions that it can cause. But for pilots, especially, falling asleep is a big issue. Uh, and that's a common presentation for sleep apnea is falling asleep during the day. I mean, you've mentioned there regards to the pilot's part. I mean, from, from my side of it as well, is with the irregular scheduling um, that a pilot will go to, or even cabin crew, or, or any, anybody that's on shift work in particular, um, that the difficulty is there. I remember you would go to sleep, at, or you try to go to sleep at 7 or 8 o'clock in the evening to, for a departure, maybe 3 a.m., but you couldn't get to sleep. And then by right. the time you depart at 3 o'clock, your, your body is already feeling tired, fatigued, um, you know, possibilities of, of, of stress. And then if you work all the way through the morning, Oh, sorry, the, yeah, the morning and then into the afternoon and you come back, it's even more difficult to get asleep again. It's kind of a strange, um, as if you're overtired, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know, you know I kind of feel the same way from my medical training. I mean, we had shift work. Uh, I, was, I trained at the time that we were allowed to be up 48 hours straight. You know, now, fortunately, people figured it out that that was probably not a good thing for doctors <laughs> and subsequently for patients. But I did train in, I did train in that era. And so I, I totally empathize with what uh, people in the airline industry go through. And there's so much interest now on sleep. Uh, you, you'll hear many different informational podcasts or articles. Ariana Huffington is, is pretty well known for her interest in sleep. She's written a few books on it. But that, that, that chronic sleep deprivation and irregular schedule has huge impacts on all aspects of the body and things that we didn't even think about, like risk of cancer and just a variety of other things, including heart disease. It's, it's a big tie-in. So then what, what, what is then the signs and symptoms? So, for example, 
if what would I be experiencing to want to go to the doctor to see you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, it, it, it can range. So you have this spectrum. And sometimes it's tied to age. So our younger patients with AFib, and we have seen people as young as 18 that get AFib. Usually there's some genetics involved, but it depends on the age as to how the AFib occurs. So as I mentioned, most patients with AFib are typically over age 50. So I mentioned that 60 is kind of a cutoff for risk, but, but we see lots of patients in that younger category that can get AFib if they have some of these other risk factors. And so the symptoms can range from a very rapid heart rate or irregular heartbeats, skipping heartbeat, what we call palpitations. And the hallmark of AFib is that the heart rate is not just fast, it's irregular. So if you think of music and a metronome and how your heart rate should be a regular beat, when you have this chaotic rhythm, it's one of the things to consider is AFib. Now you can have what are called premature beats, extra beats from either the top chambers called premature atrial beats or from the bottom chambers called premature ventricular beats or PVCs. And those can cause similar symptoms. So sometimes that's a little bit tricky when people are feeling this irregular skipping beat. If you look at statistics, most of the time when people feel a skipping or irregular beat, it is not a fib. It's most likely these premature beats, which we typically consider as benign. And I'm talking about the healthy population. However, if you have any of these risk factors for AFib, then those skipping beats could easily represent AFib. And the reason why this is relevant is you know, there's two companies out on the market that have developed technologies, and there's even more actually, for, for detecting AFib, specifically to help people figure out whether they're symptoms are related at all to a heart rhythm problem. So the first company to market was Cardia Mobile. Uh, that's the device. It's made by a company called AliveCore, and you can actually get it on Amazon. It's $90 on Amazon. Oh, okay. it's, it's, a, it's a finger pad sensor that interfe- interfaces uh, through Bluetooth with your iPhone or your uh, Samsung or whatever you have, and you can actually record an EKG or an electrocardiogram. EKG is a, is a test, one of the basic tests that we do in cardiology to assess someone's rhythm. The limitation with an EKG, though, is it's only useful for the time it's done in the doctor's office. And the thing about AFib and any electrical issue of the heart is it comes and goes, and that's the biggest challenge with making diagnoses with AFib and other heart rhythm conditions, is you could have symptoms at home, but then by the time you get to the emergency room or the doctor's office, your rhythm may have flipped back to normal, just like a problem with your electrical system in your car or your airplane or your house works you know, 90% of the time, and then when it acts up, you need to be able to see it when it acts up. So these companies, CardioMobile, for example, have created a, an ability for people to, with the finger, it, putting the finger on the electrodes creates a, a rhythm that the device through a sort of AI algorithm can translate into AFib. And it has about an 80 to 85% uh, sensitivity specificity for detecting AFib. So it's actually relatively good. It's not perfect by any means. And these extra beats that I mentioned, the benign ones, sometimes can confuse the device if, if someone's having enough of them. So it'll classify it as either AFib, possible AFib, unclassified, or normal rhythm. So it does give people real-time feedback. Now, Apple saw this opportunity, and so they developed in their Series 4 and Series 5 watches, the more recent watches, the ability to do the exact same thing, to record an EKG with the side the bezel, you just put your finger on it and it's got a crystal in there that will do something similar in terms of acting as an electrode to record your heart's rhythm. And the nice thing about both of these devices is it stores it in your health app on your phone and it'll create a PDF. You can send it to your physician to review. There's also independent services that people can subscribe to where a physician will overread the, the tracings. And we've made diagnosis this way with, with AFib and other types of heart rhythm issues through these technologies. So that's definitely the future is, is these wearable technologies. And the future is now, really, in terms of uh, diagnosis. So I mentioned like that's on one end of the spectrum of symptoms of heart rhythm problems, uh, this irregular heartbeat concept. And it can range from benign stuff, like I mentioned, like the premature beats to full-on AFib. 
And then the other end of the spectrum is, as I mentioned, sort of the pump performance idea. So when people go into AFib, often a symptom is just feeling terrible. People just can't do much. They feel short of breath, sometimes chest discomfort, but shortness of breath, fatigue, and overall zapping of energy is a very common symptom. And what's unique about it is because the electrical system problem typically comes and goes, especially in the beginning of the disease, you will have discrete episodes. So someone may wake up one day feeling terrible for a few hours, and then they feel better and kind of back to themselves. And so you can flip in and out of AFib. Your heart can go back into rhythm, into AFib, and it can go on. The AFib can start as a few minutes, then a few hours, then a few days, until eventually the heart as a muscle develops a muscle memory for wanting to stay in AFib. So it is a progressive disease going from early onset AFib, like the cancer analogy we used, early onset electrical cancer, which is called paroxysmal AFib. You go in and out of it to continuous AFib, which is called persistent AFib. And think of that almost as like sort of more of a metastatic electrical cancer. So you can imagine, David, that the, the success rate of different treatments has to do with the stage of AFib you're in. And in the past, our success rates were only really good for paroxysmal, but with advancements in technology, we are actually able to treat many patients with all different stages of AFib. And while we're sometimes hesitant to use the word cure when it comes to AFib, it often can be cured, especially if it's caught early. So the, the theme really for your listeners with AFib is early detection, early intervention, best prognosis, just like cancer. It's probably the best way to think about it. We've mentioned there with regards to, I mean, sometimes you might have some symptoms and you go into the hospital and it mightn't be able to be seen um, possibly by the doctors and a further investigation might be required. So sometimes pilots and cabin crew, they have a like a six monthly or a yearly right. ECG. So if it does pop up on the ECG or what, what, what are you what are you looking on the ECG at to? Yeah make it like an irregular heartbeat? And how can you calm their concerns if it does pop up? Well, I think you raise a very important point, which is a six month EKG is a very poor screening tool for the heart's electrical rhythm. Because you talk about an EKG, that's maybe, maybe a 10 second rhythm analysis. And I mentioned that AFib comes and goes. Yeah. So unless you're in continuous AFib, which by then you, your disease has already progressed, um, it, it's, you know, it's not a very useful screening tool for a for AFib. What it does help with is is it helps with a lot of things. It it tells us is the electrical system healthy. So if the heart rate is exceedingly slow, then that could sometimes be a sign of a person needing a pacemaker. Now you can have really athletic people have a slow heart rate. That's a sign of good conditioning. Or you can have someone who has a slow heart rate that's abnormal. That's pathologic. And so the, the EKG can be helpful for that. The EKG can be helpful for analyzing other aspects of the electrical system to see the same disease process of scarring that can cause AFib can also cause abnormalities in the normal electrical system resulting in the need for a pacemaker if the heart rate goes too slow. So the, uh, the other thing, you know, when pilot goes for a, a FAA sort of based physical is that if they do see irregular heartbeats, you can distinguish on an EKG, a doctor can distinguish on an EKG, a normal rhythm, a normal rhythm with extra benign heartbeats, like I mentioned, the premature beats, or AFib. AFib is easy to diagnose on an EKG. It's very apparent. You have what's called loss of the P wave. The P wave is the electrical signal for the atrium contracting normally. So it, it almost looks like noise. Like when you look at an EKG, and if a pilot shows up for a visit and they're in AFib, you'll see these spikes in a very irregular pattern. It's all about chaos. Like I use the term cardiac chaos. That's really what AFib is. It's just this chaotic rhythm. So it's readily diagnosed. But the big limitation is that uh, I take care of a fair number of pilots, actually, 
And so I have to do the whole FAA analysis, the 24-hour Holter monitor, the stress test, the EKG. But well, that's what and, I meant, Ashley. Not that monitor that, that that's what some of the, the, the crew, they get a little bit concerned yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Because they feel they're being watched now for 24 hours. So what, what does that involve, wearing that device? Yeah. So it's, a, it's essentially like an EKG for 24 hours. So people typically get three to five uh, electrode stickers connected to wires, and they wear this unit. And the unit continuously records the heart rhythm, and it will tell the doctor what the heart rate range is. It'll tell the doctor whether the person's having any concerning pauses, like really slow heart rates, especially they may not realize it while they're sleeping. So that's the advantage of the 24-hour is that you get analysis of the heartbeat during sleep, during daytime activities, and if you're lucky, you may catch AFib. But as I mentioned, so that's just 24 hours of time, but the way AFib works, and many heart rhythm disturbances for that matter, is they don't happen every day. Like AFib doesn't happen every day unless you're in it continuously. Usually early in the disease of AFib, you may have, well, you may have an episode once every six months. So you can imagine, if you're going for a six-month physical, and your AFib episode happens once every six months, yeah. <laughs> maybe even at night when you're, it's not going to be a very useful test. So that's why there has been all this development in rhythm monitoring technology that is what we call longitudinal, meaning the ability to monitor someone's rhythm over time. So we have a variety of other monitors that are used. We have one-week monitors, two-week monitors, four-week monitors. These are devices that people can wear that are a little less uh, intrusive. A halter is kind of a large device. We actually have a device called a patch monitor. It almost looks like a Band-Aid, and it has a microchip in it, and it's waterproof. You can shower with it. It stays on your body for about two weeks. It's like this Band-Aid basically on your chest. <laughs> and, and so that actually has a relatively good yield for, for detecting AFib. Uh, we have implantable monitors, so just like in your pets, like we have a dog at home. You know how they get the, the microchip implanted to them to – to track their movement. Well, we actually have a, a, a chip that, don't worry, the government can't track you with this chip, but we have, a, we, have a, we have a chip that actually can record your heart's rhythm. The chip sits right underneath the skin, right on top of your pectoralis, your chest muscle, and it'll record your electrical rhythm. That chip is good for up to three years, and people can actually wirelessly transmit the data from that chip to us. So you could have a pilot in Italy or in China, and if they have this little unit with them, it's like a base station, it will transmit their rhythm data, and I've had this happen with pilots included, um, it will transmit it back to me. So if someone goes away for like four weeks and they're just wanting to know what's going on with their heart rhythm, we have about six office staff that their job every day is to check all our, we have about 500 patients that have these implantable devices. And those have been game changers, those implantable devices, because we picked up so many episodes of AFib people weren't aware of. Or like for your listeners, you know, the, the, all the risk factors I mentioned, if someone, you know, has multiple risk factors or AFib, or if they've had a prior stroke and there was no reason why the stroke happened, that, that's a big one. Like AFib is a cause of stroke in probably almost 30% of cases. So when people come into the hospital, it's actually not uncommon for doctors to not figure out what caused the stroke. There's a, in many cases, a stroke is related to a blocked artery somewhere, but it's also related to AFib that a person may not have felt. And by the time they go to the hospital, their rhythm is back to normal. So AFib isn't even considered on the, on the diagnostic list. So these implantable monitors have made a big difference. So because of all of this technology development, that's why companies like AliveCore, I mentioned that little cardiomobile device, and that's why Apple got into the market is because... Apple now has built-in technology that they're working with Stanford on. Stanford's my alma mater. I did most of my, my post-grad medical training at Stanford. And so Stanford's in the heart of Silicon Valley. So it was natural for them to do a collaborative research study called the Apple Heart Study with Stanford. They're looking at people who have Apple watches, and they're looking to see how often do people get diagnosed with AFib through the watch. And then what's cool is part of the study is they're looking at, okay, you get notified how often does that person actually go on to seek medical care? That's the cool part of the study. And so they actually have these virtual doctor visits set up. So you're wearing your watch, say you're a pilot, say, you know, you're, you're part of the study, you're wearing your watch and it says, Hey, you know what? You could have a fib. Then it'll allow you to set up a virtual doctor's appointment so you can get additional testing done. Like one of these other monitors I mentioned. 
that's really, that the future is now. Like that's, you know, I think if I had a recommendation for people, if they really wanted to monitor their heart rhythm, the Apple Watch is a great, and I'm sure the other parts of the fitness industry will develop something similar. Uh, but that kind of thing is a great option because you got the, you got the health features of an Apple Watch, you have the fall detection of the Apple Watch, and, and then you have this ability to record the EKG. And I should offer a disclosure, I have no relationship to Apple, so you probably I'm will saying now. these things. <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 saying these, I'm saying these things purely as a physician. You'll, you'll have Jeff Bezos now from Amazon. He'll be like, oh, okay, there's, there's another thing we, we should be investing in. So yes, no, no, no. you've designed something. So you mentioned there uh, briefly before uh, the podcast started, we, we touched on it, the connection between mental health and AFib or, or, or the heart itself. I mean, what, what is that yeah. connection? Especially now yeah, during COVID-19. Absolutely. So, you know, the brain-heart connection is governed by something called the autonomic nervous system, ANS, and that is composed of two branches. One is called the sympathetic, which is really what our fight-or-flight response is. You know, we were designed for survival. So when we were come across a dinosaur or a saber-toothed tiger, the first thing our body does is blood pressure goes up, heart rate goes up, and that is an interface between the brain and the heart. You know, there's parts of the brain that process that threat, and there's parts of the heart that process that threat. And it's this sort of relationship that occurs. So it turns out that heart rhythm disorders are intimately connected to that. So we actually, there's treatments for heart rhythm disorders that involve treating the autonomic nervous system. We have stimulators. You know, you hear about these stimulators that are used for like Parkinson's and seizures and things like that. There's something kind of similar with regards to heart rhythm issues, that we use stimulators to target either the sympathetic, that fight or flight response, or the parasympathetic. The parasympathetic is what we call the rest or relax response, and it's governed by something called the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is what slows your heart rate down at night, but it turns out the vagus nerve is actually a trigger for AFib, and that's why people often get AFib episodes in the evening when they're sleeping. It's rare to get AFib when you're exercising. AFib usually occurs, in fact, most heart rhythm uh, issues usually occur at rest. And the reason for that is your heart rate slows down at rest. And it's easier for these skipping beats and these extra beats to set off AFib. So the skipping extra beats are kind of like the spark and AFib is like the fire. And that has a greater tendency to occur at night. And so there's a lot of, and so how does that tie into mental health and everything else? Well, it turns out that your emotional and mental resilience and your ability to respond to any kind of situational change, whether that's a pandemic, whether that's violence in our society, whether that's getting into a fight at work, whether that's conflict at home, any of those things, if you were to measure what goes on in your body, there's something called heart rate variability or HRV. And that's something actually that many fitness devices, Fitbits and things like that can measure, HRV. Uh, people in the fitness industry are very familiar with HRV and, and heart rate variability is actually measuring this connection between the brain and the heart. And so what it's looking at is it's looking at the beat to beat variation in your heartbeat. Like if you have a pulse of 60 beats a minute, it is not a fixed 60 beats a minute. If you analyze it kind of on a micro movement level, there are times where it's beating a little faster than 60 beats per minute and a little bit slower than 60 beats per minute. And that's actually tied into your breathing cycle, to your lungs, and to this brain-heart connection. So you actually, there's technologies out there where you actually can read out your heart rate variability. Think of it as a, a measure of your resilience to stress. And you can actually meditate or do a mindfulness technique or go for a walk or do deep breathing techniques. And you can actually activate your rest and relax response and bring a little bit better balance to your heart brain connection. And that'll actually show up in the HRV. So it's a great metric that many people don't realize this. You can use this metric, which is available on so many like common consumer devices that can actually help you manage stress. The, so that's, that's one aspect of things. And then you asked also about mental health and AFib. 
So I actually wrote an article. It's on a, um, a website called Thrive Global, thriveglobal.com. Uh, it's, it's actually Ariana Huffington's uh, brainchild. Like she, you know, when she left the Huffington Post, she created this website. It's a, it's a phenomenal resource um, for people, just FYI, that I get their newsletter and there's stuff about mental health almost every day in the context of the pandemic. There's stuff about like, how do you survive working at home when you have children? And I mean, there's just such great stuff out there. They're really trying to, um, to help people. And so I was fortunate to connect with her and I wrote a few articles and one of them is actually on AFib and burnout. So it turns out that there was a study actually done in Europe, uh, published in the Journal of the American Heart Association, that actually found that people who undergo job burnout, where you're literally you know, so stressed to the point it's affecting your health, that they're at higher risk for developing AFib, independent of that, all the other risk factors that I mentioned, that, that job burnout alone. And, and again, the theory here is your brain and your heart are connected. And if you stress your brain, you're going to stress your heart. And we see that all the time that, you know, there's this strong connection between heart attack and depression or people who undergo bypass surgery getting depression. So, yes. so yeah, more now more than ever, you know, it's so critical to, and it's by no means easy, uh, but we have so many great devices and apps that I use this one called Calm, which you'll see commercials for. Calm is like a wonderful app for, for just managing your mental health. And you can actually like measure your pulse during these meditation sessions. You'll see it's, it's been shown on multiple studies that blood pressure and heart rate go down when you do deep breathing techniques. And that translates into better mental health. You mentioned there, uh, Dr. Singh, with regards to uh, burnout. Do you think as the individual we're creating the burnout or is it specific to the company environment now or the pressure of society in general? Is it kind of like we're trying to overachieve all the time? We're putting ourselves under so much stress, so much pressure. Like, is, is that where it's coming from, this burnout? For, uh, this, this mentality? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. There's a whole science to this. I mean, there's a whole field to studying burnout. And, you know, the healthcare industry right now with the pandemic, I mean, the, the number of healthcare providers on the front lines that are undergoing mental health problems. I mean, you heard about that ER physician that committed suicide that was in the news. I mean, it's astronomical. And so burnout, burnout is just pervasive in the medical profession and also in so many other professions. So at an organizational level, like that's where it really has a, has a, has a big influence. So yeah, companies, if the company has a culture, you know, whether it's a Amazon or whether it's an airline industry company or whether it's a hospital, if the culture is productivity and sacrificing people's sort of work-life balance as a result, then that's going to drive job burnout. People are going to get disengaged and they're going to be working and not sleeping and carry that stress home with them. And then it impacts their family life. And then that impacts their work productivity the next day. It's all connected. So it really, the biggest driver for burnout is the organizational culture. That is the biggest driver. The individual, sure, like the individual needs to take responsibility for their physical, mental, and emotional health. But they need to be given the time to do it. So if there's so much pressure on them during the day and then they're carrying that at home, then it's going to be hard. So that's where the individual can make a difference. If you really focus on, and, and the pandemic has given this opportunity for people to focus on self-care. Now, you know, if you're a single parent and you're trying to homeschool your kids in the pandemic, you don't have time. You don't really have much time for self-care. So, but many people are having free time, but even for that person who doesn't have free time, I always talk to people about micro steps in behavioral change. So, you know, they say like, get up five or 10 minutes earlier than you normally would. And that five to 10 minutes, just make it a practice to do some deep breathing, you know, use one of these apps. And, you know, neuroscience has taught us that it takes about 21 days to, to develop a good habit. So if you can commit to 21 days of getting up, five to 10 minutes early before your kids get up or what have you, or before you have to work, hop on a zoom call 
and you do that, I mean, I can tell you from personal experience, it's been a game changer for me. I, I, you know, you can imagine when I walk into an operating room and I have a patient on the table and I'm about ready to like, in, in some cases, we actually put people into cardiac arrest to test out a defibrillator device. I mean, it sounds, <laughs> it's, it, it, it sounds crazy, but if, if you were at risk for cardiac arrest and I gave you a device, you know, like my dad who, who died of cardiac arrest, if I gave someone a device that's designed to protect them, like basically a walking paramedic in your chest, you would want to make sure it works, right? No, of course. So <laughs> the, the, only, the only way to do that is we can actually induce an artificial cardiac arrest and make sure the device rescues the person. So you can imagine like as a physician, no matter how many years you've doing, been doing this for, and I've done it for a long time, like you're still stressed out walking into that room and then you got all eyes on you and you know, maybe you haven't been sleeping because you're just working too hard and all of those things. For me, when I started practicing mindfulness and I started focusing on self-care, on nutrition, sleep is a big one. When I started really making it a priority for me, it didn't take too long to notice major differences. And people noticed those differences in me. You know, people commented on, well, you just seem a lot more centered. You just seem like things are just not phasing you as much. And it's true, you know, and, and this is where your listeners, I mean, they can use these different techniques, whether it's heart rate variability. The Calm app is a great app. There's a company called HeartMath that makes a device that allows you to, to do meditation with heart rate variability. It doesn't have to be mindfulness. I mean, you know, it could, I have a buddy who, I mean, his, he, he cycles and, and his mindfulness is going for an early morning ride. Like that's his Zen place or, you know, we're in California, so surfing is really big here. It doesn't matter what it is. The point being is that you have to incorporate it and you got to do it every day. And the biggest misconception is it takes too much time and you don't have time for it yeah. because there's, there's science that shows you know, it only takes a few minutes a day. It only takes literally three to five minutes a day of pausing and breathing and making a conscious effort to really impact the rest of your day in, in a very, you know, more kind of a more healthy way. So come on, aviation professionals, download some of these apps and, uh, get your breathing techniques kicked in as, as soon as possible. Because as you mentioned yourself, I mean, what you said, you've hit the nail on the head. There's so much pressure and stress. And then you actually forget to look after yourself as the individual. You're always worried yeah. about everybody else. But if you just take yeah. those five or 10 minutes, as you said, maybe get up a little bit earlier, do some breathing exercise. It does make, it make a hell of a difference. So let's move on then to your uh, best-selling book, Restart Your Heart, The Playbook Thriving with AFib. So what, what can our listeners expect from, from your book? So this basically is, if you get diagnosed with AFib, you get this book, it's going to walk you through from A to Z in a very simple, actionable process. It's got lots of illustrations to really help understand what AFib is, the heart. It's a holistic, integrative approach, so it's not about just pushing medication or procedures. I didn't really touch on it too much, but I do a procedure called catheter ablation for AFib, which is actually highly effective. But the most important thing about the book is it's delivering credibility and credible information to dispel a lot of myths. There are so many myths out there that there are no treatments for AFib, that you have to live in AFib. And these are coming even from, you know, cardiologists and other healthcare providers simply because they're not aware of the advancements. I live and breathe AFib. I, I deal with it every day. I, I'm a, AFib specialist. So, you know, the book is really designed to dispel myths, to give people actionable plans and resources. And so that's why it's called the playbook. And, and the gentleman who wrote the forward, David Baker, he's the president and CEO of the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. And I didn't go into this too much, but athletes are a huge group that are at risk for AFib now. We're seeing so many more athletes and there's reasons for that. Football players, six times risk of AFib compared to people who weren't in the NFL. So oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. it's, 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 oh, it's, it's, huge. it's huge. So that's why, you know, one of the themes is like playbooks. So if you get diagnosed with a disease, whether it's cancer, whether it's ulcerative colitis, or whether it's asthma or anything, you know, you want a playbook. You want a, you want a, a source of information that, that tells you those things. And so there's a lot of um, free components of the book online at my website, drasimdesai.com, drasimdesai.com. There's a blog there, lots of great information. You can get downloadable worksheets for determining your risk. I'm also on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. It's just at Dr. Asim Desai. 
and people can message me with questions. But on those different platforms, uh, I also have a YouTube channel. It's all easy to remember because it's at Dr. Asim Desai. Um, I, I try to provide people with those tools. So um, if there's a, we have a couple of different giveaways right now. The book is going to be released September 1st, which is just in a few weeks. It's National AFib Awareness Month, the month of September. A lot of people don't realize that, National AFib Awareness Month. So um, we have uh, something called Goodreads Giveaway, uh, which you can message me again on any of these channels, and I can give you the link for. But it's like 100 books, free giveaway, just enter to, to, to get that. The book comes as hardcover and as ebook. And um, yeah, you know, we're, we're proud of it. Uh, we, meaning myself, the author, and my publisher, Greenleaf uh, Book Group, uh, that I, I, we really hope it's going to help a lot of people because the, the, the impetus for the book was a gentleman said to me one day, thank you, Dr. Desai, for curing my AFib because I was told I just had to live with it. That's what made me write the book because someone said that to me. And, you know, I didn't go into this in too much detail, but I've had my own health issues, which I talk about at the beginning of the book. And when I got diagnosed with my condition, I wanted a playbook and I didn't, there wasn't one available. And I had to do this research on my own. Well, the idea behind this is like giving people a playbook so that they, not just the patient, families, the caregivers, and also healthcare providers, so they have a resource to know you don't have to live with AFib. There's lots of treatment options out there. I'm not saying everyone can be cured. I'm not saying everyone can be in normal rhythm, but more and more people can nowadays. And even in people who have continuous AFib, Lots of treatment options available. We didn't go into this, but we have, it's amazing, Dave. We have pacemakers now that we use for AFib, for example, that are leadless. It's a little pellet that I put into the heart from the femoral vein. You can't even tell on the outside someone has a pacemaker. There's no wires or anything. And people don't realize this. That these technologies are, are out there. And, you know, I'm the first to say as a field, we need to do a better job of raising AFib awareness. Yeah. And you, you know, there's lot, lots of people out there, people don't realize have AFib. Barry Manilow has AFib, he's a big spokesperson for it. Billie Jean King, Larry Bird, Howie Mandel, Kevin Nealon, Kenley Jansen from the Dodgers uh, was in the news a year or two ago. You know, he got pulled out of a game because he went into AFib as he was pitching in Denver. Well, people don't realize like this disease can affect anyone. And um, you know, it's, re it's really, I really encourage people to reach out to me and um, please feel free to check out the book. And even just, you know, the blog is out there for you. Uh, you can get a lot of information that's in the book off the blog. So, so aviation professionals, uh, get off your backsides, do some breeding, get the book, restart your heart, uh, which is available is on Amazon as well, isn't it? Yeah. So you can either get to it from my website or if you just search for it on Amazon, it's on Amazon, it's on Barnes and Nobles, it's on a couple of other platforms. It's also going, it's also in Barnes and Nobles bookstores. Uh, so you would just, it, the release date is September 1st, but you can pre-order it now. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Asim Desai for joining me today on Aviation United by Aviation Zero. It's been a fascinating chat and uh, I'd love to have you on again uh, in the future to talk more about this. So thank you so much. Thank you, David.